Seminary, at Reformed Theological Seminary back in Orlando, Florida in the early 90s. I uh, connected up with a couple of young men who became friends and are still friends of mine. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, former pastor of the Beery family, Bill, and another young man named Jeff, who was fresh out of the Navy and seeking Lord's, the Lord's wisdom in him going into the ministry. And Bill and Jeff and I were in the same small group together. We went to the same classes together. We played ping pong together. We did a lot of stuff together. And one of the things we did together is we were in a little accountability group with each other. Now, I just thought this was going to be just a normal get-together where we get get together, talk about stuff we're struggling with, and pray for each other because that's what those groups usually are. And and I wasn't too scared of that because I wasn't a bad person. You know, I was a good person. And so they weren't, I didn't feel intimidated by that. Um, boy, was I wrong. Here's what was going on. <laughs> so Bill and Jeff were into this new thing that I hadn't heard, really heard of yet. Um, and they were studying this topic of sonship and adoption. And they had come upon this ministry called World Harvest Missions, and they offered this uh, counseling by telephone back in those days. We didn't use the Internet for everything. They actually talked on the phone, and a regular phone, not one you could see each other through or play games on, just a regular phone. And they were doing this counseling over the phone each week that was totally cutting them into little tiny bits and pieces morally. They were finding out about their hidden sins. They were finding out about their idols. They were finding out about ways they were treating people wrong. They were trying, finding out about how wrong their identity was and how they misunderstood who they were in Christ. And they were both of them trying all this stuff out on me every week in this accountability group. They had all these neat ideas about uh, how people need to change their life. And both of them worked on me at the same time uh, in that accountability group. And I just remember thinking, this isn't fun. Um, they said they, because they knew everything. They were coming up on all these new ideas and new concepts and new ways of talking about the gospel that I hadn't really thought of before. And they were just killing me with it. And I eventually began to understand more about what was going on, that there was uh, really in the early 70s, uh, there was a, a man named Richard Lovelace, and he had uh, written a book on sanctification that had just kind of been on the back burner, and not many people had picked up on it. And then uh, a man named Jack Miller, if you look him up online, it'll be C. Jack Miller is how his name will be. He was a professor at Westminster in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he started pastoring a, a church, New Life Church um, in Philadelphia, and, and started a whole movement of churches in the PCA primarily, but some in the OPC that would call themselves New Life and then wherever they were, Presbyterian Church. 
And they were folks that were all on board with this Christ-centered, gospel-centered style of understanding people and promoting sanctification. Sometimes it gets labeled with things like the sonship movement and things like that. But it was all about understanding how we are sanctified by faith. Well, more and more I kept reading and trying to understand. And sure enough, some of the people in the movement said some things that maybe didn't make as much sense when you look at scriptures. But the the core of the movement that we trust God and, and we're sanctified by faith in His gospel has stuck with me as a critical, important, and usually missing piece of the puzzle for most believers. And I want to talk about that over the next couple of weeks because the text forces you to. As we look here at Romans chapter 1 today, he speaks about, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, remember, he has a letter he's writing, but he's not writing it to dear uh, uh, this longitude and latitude that scopes out the parameters of Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome. And so, isn't it weird, as particularly my Baptist brothers and sisters, because I was in the Baptist church for 20 years, isn't it interesting, he says, I'm coming to preach the gospel to the Christians to the church at Rome. And most of the time, my response, when, when, if you said that to me when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I'd have said, why do Christians need the gospel preached to them? I, I received the gospel when I was five years old. I held the pastor's hand. I cried. I got baptized that night. I, I don't need the gospel. Those people, those bad people are the ones who need the gospel. Well, Paul says, and you just, and this is just observing the text. This isn't anything deep. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who is he talking to? The Christians who are in Rome. Hmm. So it makes you scratch your head a little bit. Well, maybe that's just a funny turn of the phrase. Maybe he didn't really mean it that way. Maybe he still meant, I mean all the unbelievers that are in Rome. And that's maybe what he meant. Now keep reading. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wait, he should have, he said that backwards. He should have said, it's the power of gospel to salvation for everyone who doesn't believe. Because that, the gospel is for unbelievers, right? But no, he says it backwards. Hmm. Let's keep reading. To the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Not the unrighteous man, but the righteous man. There's something going on here in this text that points us in the direction we're going this morning, which is how then do we apply and live the gospel every day? Because if the text is saying, if Paul is saying, I'm coming here to preach the gospel to you, that you might apply it, understand it, and know it in a deeper and deeper way, and it's going to enable you then to live by faith, then we have to think very practically about that. Well, then what does that mean? How do I 
preach the gospel to myself? How do I recite and renew the work of the gospel in my heart every day? What does that even mean? Paul's goal in Romans 1 through 11 is promoted by this text because he's trying to show that the gospel is the great leveler. It unites Jews and Gentiles together to one another and to Christ. It speaks of their common need and their common Messiah, their common mission, and the common message that empowers them to do ministry. This is his tool to accomplish that. The message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is what he's going to use to do that work, that goal he has for the believers in Rome. And so, to do that daily work of shaping our identity, accelerating our sanctification, giving us unity with one another, and unity that sticks, not just the fake unity on the surface where we all wear the same T-shirt or something like that, but the real unity that matters. It's going to take a miracle. And he gives the gospel to the people of Rome to do that. Not just to convert us, though the gospel does convert us, but as the gift that keeps on giving everything we need for godliness. God's gifts are all gracious. And the wise believer will learn to position themselves where God's gifts are located. I was really happy. I was, uh, I was at the Connors' home over Christmas. We were doing the uh, youth Christmas party. Uh, and some of you youth may still have trauma surrounding that, not being able to breathe. You may wake up in the night with feelings like with your sheets wrapped around your head and you can't breathe. That was that Christmas party, parents. That's what happened. But I noticed, because I admit, I judge all you by your bookshelves. And so I was snooping on their bookshelves. And I saw this book um, by Milton Vincent. And it was about the gospel. It was about this topic that I'm talking about today. Just a little skinny little book. And I saw that and I flipped it open. And I looked at it and I said, aha, this guy, he, he gets it. He's... He's been drinking from some of the same streams that, that I have. This is interesting. So I went home and I ordered. I went to Amazon and I ordered the book and got it and uh, read through it. And it was very helpful. And you'll, and you'll find things. If you go home, Alan, and look in that book, you're going to find stuff I'm saying today. Uh, because I am unashamedly, as he is unashamedly, uh, borrowing and enjoying the fruits of men like Jerry Bridges, men like Jack Miller, men like John Calvin, men like Richard Lovelace. As he's enjoying the, the, the fruits and the work of them, I'm, I'm enjoying them too uh, today. And I want to pass them on to you. Not as something I just thought up this week, but as good, solid, meaty truth that is designed to sustain you for the rest of your life. We're going to learn today that to get God's power for living in far more abundance than anything else I can really do in my life is I need to preach the gospel to myself daily. 
I've been a Christian, I can't believe I'm going to say this, for around 47 years. <sighs> uh, and I've tried a lot of things to grow in Christ. I've read my Bible a lot. I have used study guides. I've used I mean, anything. You go in the Christian bookstore, you spin yourself around, you reach out and grab something, and I've probably used something like that at one time or the other to try to grow in Christ. I find that all those other things can be helpful. But if I ignore the being in constant contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all that other stuff doesn't help very much at all. I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I feel like the Christian life flows and, and, and everything I'm supposed to do as a believer flows more freely and naturally and passionately when I'm inhaling and exhaling the gospel. And if you don't believe me, then try what I'm talking about. Try doing what I'm talking about. And you've got an outline inside your bulletin to help take some notes on this. And this is just part one. We're going to have a bunch of... We're going to have some of these same little nuggets that I'm going to give you next week as we finish up the first part of this topic. So why is it that I need to preach the gospel to myself? The first reason is it's the New Testament model. If you look in Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, if you go to the book of Ephesians, do you know what you'll discover? The first three chapters are just filled with the gospel. And then following that is application and theology and doctrine. But he builds all of that upon Ephesians 1 through 3. If you look at the book of Colossians, you look at Colossians 1 and 2, it's gospel. It's about who Jesus is and his death and his life and his resurrection for you. And then the rest of it, he walks out the implications now of that. You look at the book of Romans. Either, depending on how you measure, either Romans 1 through 8 or Romans 1 through 11, one or the other is full of gospel. It's just chocked full of it. And then he goes on, starting in Romans 12, and says, okay now, now we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Then he begins to talk about the practical implications of that. It's the New Testament model of putting the gospel first. Not just walking down the aisle, holding the pastor's hand and getting saved first, but the whole truth of the gospel. Number two, it's my daily, daily need. The gospel is so uh, foolish and ridiculous to my natural wisdom. How could a a middle-aged Jewish guy getting killed 2,000 years ago matter for me right now? I don't even know what he looks like. When my natural mind thinks about that, it seems foolish. 
when my ego, it is so insulting to my ego that I can't save myself, that I can't change my standing before God by my effort and by my work, and that is such a slap in the face to me every day. And it's so incredible, the the story of what God did from the garden to Revelation 22 is so astounding and awesome, incredible, inconceivable, that my timid heart and my limited imagination can hardly hold it. There simply is no other way to to combat the demands of my ego, the condemnation of my heart, the lies of the world and the devil, to overwhelm such things that are constantly fighting inside of me than a daily rehearsal and application of the gospel. Because at every point, the gospel has a beautiful answer to those objections. Number three. The third reason I need the gospel every day is so that I can experience the power of God. Outside of heaven, the power of God in its greatest density, I don't know quite the right word to use there, but I'm going to use the word density, is found inside the gospel. I say that because the Bible says so. The Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. And so I'm going to go on the record that it's the power of God. And the only thing else that comes close to being described that way is the person of Jesus Christ is described as the power and wisdom of God. I think that the ultimate entity in which we may experience God's power and where it does its greatest work is inside the framework of the gospel of God. God's power is seen in all sorts of cosmological events. It's seen in miracles. It's seen all over the place. But if the gospel is the place that God has said then that, yeah, erupting volcanoes and miracles, they're cool and everything, but if you really want to see my power, look at my son and look at the story about him. I'm going to go on the record and say that's how I experience the power of God is by meditating on Christ and his promises and his story, the gospel. Number four, I need to preach the gospel to myself daily for my own protection. As long as I am inside the gospel, I experience all the protection I need from the power of evil that will rage against me. It's for this reason that when we go to the book of Ephesians, we find this language about the armor of God 
He says to take up and put on the armor of God. And when you read that text and look at it, those pieces and bits and parts of that armor are synonyms for the gospel. When we look at those different parts of armor that are there, it talks about our salvation, our justification, the truth, the gospel of peace, the faith, the word of God. These are just various ways of talking about the gospel that we are putting on and wearing for our protection. So if you want to Stand victorious in Jesus. You can go to the Christian bookstore or listen to the Christian radio station. Listen to a lot of Christian ministers that will tell you how to be victorious in Jesus. But I'm going to side with the old gospel hymn writer who said to put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. I think he got it right that God would tell me to take up and put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that when I wake up in the morning, I don't always have it on. Some very tender parts of my body are often exposed, metaphorically speaking, when I get up in the morning, where I get up thinking I can figure my way out. When I get up in the morning, my mind will start to race and think about my schedule and all the things I need to do. And I'll get my Google calendar and I'll look and I'll start moving things around it. That's because I think I'm in charge, I'm in control. And if I have maximum control over my day, everything will be okay. What better way is there to deal with this urge we have for self-protection, for, for controlling the world around us, that instead put on the gospel armor that he has given us. Number five, to secure freedom from sin's power is why I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. To secure freedom from sin's power. As long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins and the shame of my misdeeds and the, 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 the great uh, regret and remorse that threatens to wear me down day after day after day. I will never be free to celebrate and rejoice in what God is doing in this church, in my life, in my family, in my world, in my nation. Because I'll just be too depressed. I'll be too sad. I'll be too angry. The devil is well aware of that fact. And he knows if he can keep me tormented with thoughts of my own sin, he can dominate me without having to lift a finger. He doesn't have to do anything. But the forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me from its guilt. 
And preaching this kind of forgiveness to ourselves is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation, nullifying sin's power to pin us down daily. Pilgrim's progress. The pilgrim Christian is traveling along and he finds himself in the slough of despond. And he's there stuck and he can't get out and help comes along and one other guy comes along and says, what are you doing in there? And he says, I I was doing okay on the road. I was going the right direction. But then out of fear, I misstepped and I found myself here. When you have guilt and shame hanging over your head all day long. It's just that much of a step to think you have God's judgment hanging over you all day long. God's frown upon you all day long and that you're this close from falling away. The gospel says, nope. You're not falling away. Number six, to experience and spread my inheritance in the saints. This is one that I got from um, Milton's book, the book I saw at Alan Connor's house, and I had never heard this one before. This is really interesting. The gospel is not a message of of just a message of reconciliation with God, but it's also one of deeply connecting believers, Vincent says, one to another in Christ, Through the substitutionary death of Christ, God has brought down the racial, economic, political, social barriers that divided us. Okay? So far, so good. And the scriptures speak of us being members of that household that's been created. And he gives us gifts that speak of our oneness in our family together. Everyone receiving these grace gifts or Eucharist in Greek. And it goes deeper as each believer then is a grace gift to each other. Now listen to this. Listen to Ephesians 1.18. It's so plain that only a pastor could miss it. Listen to this. I pray that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened, opened, so that you will know what are the riches of the, here's the key phrase, the glory of His inheritance in the saints. The glory of his inheritance in the saints? For the last 47 years, I've read that and said, oh, what does that mean? I don't know. And I read the next verse. I know you've never done that. You're chuckling because you feel pity. The glory of his inheritance in the saints, it means that I'm a portion of your inheritance and you are a portion of of mine. The, he, he says there's a glory of his inheritance and it's found where? It's found in the saints. So the more you understand the gospel and rehearse it and preach it to yourself and all that it means, part of what it means is that you value the role that I play in your life and I value the role that you play in my life. Because you're part of the glorious gift of the gospel to me and me to you. 
And that means the relationships that we have here at Evergreen are more than just important. They're more than just, yeah, it's good that I have friends at church. It's a grace gift of God given to the saints that we might believe the gospel more freely and more clearly and see it more beautifully worked out amongst us. Number seven, to cultivate humility. To cultivate humility is one of the reasons why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. According to God's word, the gospel is deliberately designed to strip me of my pride and self-sufficiency. Beekner, Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite authors, he calls it that magnificent defeat. It leaves us without grounds for boasting and pride. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. All of that then so that no one may boast. He could have saved us in a lot of different ways. God could have in heaven with his magnificent, infinite mind had us be saved by gold production. So we would go out and dig here. And we would dig down and sift down. And when we got a certain amount of gold, ding, we would win and we'd be saved. He could have done that, and that would have been okay. It would have been his prerogative to have something like that. If you were lazy enough and you didn't want to work, well, then you, you just wouldn't. You, you, would, you would die. He could have done something like that, but that would have left people with the opportunity to boast. Any way that he found to where salvation depended on my work, my effort, my intelligence, my genetics, my political affiliation would have caused boasting. Instead, he pre-engineered the gospel to deliver us from pride. And preaching the gospel to ourselves each day mounts a powerful, continuous assault against pride and replaces it with humility. It suffocates pride to hear God's solution to my sin. Humility grows like like lush grass in a Florida winter. It's beautiful in light of the gospel. It just grows and grows and pride just wilts and goes away. Number eight, just a couple more points. Another reason why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day and why Paul brought the gospel to the believers that were in Rome is so that my obedience will flow forth from love. Kids, you know what it feels like for obedience to not flow forth from love. Here's how it looks, okay? Your parents ask you to clean up the kitchen. They ask you to clean your rooms. They ask you to clean up after your pet, after your pet has done some unspeakable thing on the floor. 
Okay? Your obedience may flow forth, but it does not flow forth with love. It flows forth with irritation. It flows forth, and you let them know. <laughs> Those little, that little body language stuff that you do that you think we don't see. <laughs> but we see it. Being obedient isn't that hard. But being obedient in love. To love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment in the law. And if I could do it, I wouldn't need the gospel. I need God to provide something so that I can obey Him and love Him with that kind of love. How can I do that then? How does the gospel do that? 1 John 4.19 says that we love God because He first loved us. Is it true or not? That means that if God has placed His redeeming love on you, on me, that I can love. He's breathed life into my dead lover that kept me from loving before where I could fake it real good with the silver tongue and so forth. I could fake it. But when God loves me, He enables us to love Him and that to overflow, arguing from the greater to the lesser, to His people. Romans 5 says that God demonstrated His great love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. John 15 says that greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. Ephesians 2, but God... being rich in mercy because of His great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together in Christ. So if God has loved you, and that's what the gospel is about, then He enables us to love Him and love others, and therefore we can have obedience flowing forth in love from our life. Finally, the end of part one, point nine. This gives me, when I preach the gospel to myself, it grants me new perspective in my trials. When the gospel begins to change from something that's on a track that I give unbelievers and ask them to pray a prayer about. And when instead it becomes the house that I live in, as C.J. Mahinney calls it, or the frame through which I see the world, like looking through that window pane over there. When the gospel begins to come like that, then I get a new perspective on 
the trials, the tragedies, the difficulties, and the crises that happen to me. Because then it becomes the frame through which I view human misery, the house which I live in in the midst of disaster, the air that I breathe, even as I draw another breath to scream out in pain at him, it turns the gospel into genuinely good news out of every aspect of my life. Why? Because it's not about me. If I'm meditating on the gospel, I don't have to constantly be worried that the thing I just did, the thing that just happened to me, must have been because I did this. And because I did this, God must be mad at me about something. The gospel, when the gospel becomes that new perspective, that new set of corrective lenses in our life, that kind of thinking gets dealt a death blow because... Jesus Christ died for me. And if Jesus Christ died for you and for me, then I don't suffer eternally for sin any longer. I don't have to keep climbing up on the cross of my own guilt and shame and worry and depression and live there to just show God how sorry I am He doesn't need to take pity on me. He took pity on His Son and raised Him from the dead, victorious in new life. And I'm united to Him. And that means I have a different perspective on even death because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And one day, so will you unless he comes back first. So then, Romans 1, Paul says, for my part, as far as I'm concerned, I, number one, have been eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I've been thinking about this sermon for weeks. I have been eager to preach the gospel to the saints of Evergreen. I think you can see how Paul's argument is shaping up now and moving ahead in the book of Romans. It's been several years since the church was founded. He's telling them what he's about to tell them. I'm about to to orient. After all these years, I'm going to orient your whole life, your mission, your goals around the gospel so that your life conforms to its shape, your identity conforms to its truth, your theology beats in time with God's own heartbeat. And as we live and breathe the gospel every day, we'll make that same sort of progress that Paul wanted for the believers in Rome. It'll happen here at Evergreen, and it'll happen in our hearts And in our lives. We'll talk more about this next week. Let us pray.